Hello and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This second series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of the workplace, and this episode is one I've really been looking forward to. We have with us today uh, Christine Congdon, who's the editor of 360 Magazine and director of Global Research Communications at Steelcase, and Rebecca Chabowski, who's Brown Communications Project Leader, also at Steelcase. Steelcase is a company I've really, really wanted to talk to about this. So hello, Chris. Hello, Graham. Thank you for having us here today. Oh, you're very welcome. And hi, hi, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for having us. We're happy to be here. Great. Well, as I mentioned, I'm, I've been a, an admirer of Steelcase for a long, long time. And um, I'd like to start by you telling us a little bit about Steelcase, its history, and where you see yourselves as a company. Well, Steelcase has been around for a long, long time. Actually, we were founded at the turn of the century in 1912, and really, our our beginning uh, came from a fire, actually. And the reason why we say that is because at the time, at the turn of the century, fires um, in office buildings were, you know, that that was a, a very huge safety concern for people. And what uh, the founders of Steelcase did was actually quite innovative at the time is they they took metal bending technology that was just emerging from the automotive industry in Michigan, and they utilized that to make a metal wastebasket. And that doesn't sound terribly innovative to us today, but the idea of being able to bend and shape metal in that way at the time was quite interesting. And the idea of having a metal wastebasket allowed people in offices to put their um, their cigars or their pipe tobacco into the metal wastebasket instead of putting it into something that was made out of wood or wicker. And it really helped to minimize um, the incidence of fires within uh, offices. And so like that was the very uh, early uh, genesis of the business. And from there, we moved on to be able to create um, office furnishings and um, go on to a lot of different areas. And so really, I mean, it's it's been uh, exciting to be part of a company that has been around as long as it has been because we've been through so many things and seen and experienced so many different parts of history. And it means that we have to keep reinventing ourselves like every 20 years or so you know we have to look around and see what's happening in the world and how things are changing and be able to respond to that and so to to just be able to see that that resilience and that adaptability over time has been really a great experience to be at Steelcase. Yeah I'd actually read that story and and what was really interesting to me about that was that your first product was developed to meet a need. And we'll probably talk more about this and about design thinking and um, 
one of the things that's been really apparent to me with Steelcase is a really holistic view of the workplace rather than just selling bits of office furniture, if you like. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's that part of it all. But also within Steelcase, there is a really, really strong corporate culture. It's It's a very... I visited your Grand Rapids headquarters. I visited your technology center in Portland. Um, I, I met Jim Keen, your CEO, through through TED. And everyone I know at Steelcase and everything I've seen about Steelcase is very, very congruent. You've got a really strong corporate culture, brand identity. And that must be quite hard, in a sense, with such an old company, because you're a long way away from the founder of the company. How do you preserve that? So I'll just I'll just add that um, what's interesting about the story around the wastebasket and the fire is that there's always been this focus within our organization on what workers need and want. And um, that's changed over time as work has changed and as people's needs have changed, the company's had to change because offices have need to needed to adapt um, based on what people need and based on the ways that they need to work. But in terms of culture, it's interesting because we really look at the workplace as um, the body language of an organization. So when you walk into place, you can really get a sense of the type of company you're working for. I came to work for Steelcase um, a little over four years ago. And before I walked in the doors, I was doing what every new recruit does. I was calling three levels down of people I know to try to figure out is their culture really what they say it is? Is it really, you know, should I really go work there? And when you walked in the building, it was immediately apparent because it was, you were seeing in action the things that they were telling you. So it's evidence, right, of the cultural values that the company holds deep. So that's been something that I think is really uh, apparent within Steelcase and that they take seriously throughout every place that they're um that they are in the world. And, you know, I would just build on that and and say, you know, we actually think about culture as something that needs to be curated and fostered. Like, you know, our culture doesn't just happen. We actually take a very thoughtful approach to saying, you know, what do we want to be? You know, how, how can we shape the kinds of behaviors that we want? And to Rebecca's point, like we intentionally design the workplace to help shape the kinds of behaviors that we desire. So for example, uh, we, we highly value transparency in the organization. And when you look at the workplace, you'll see that you're not going to go into a steel case environment and find a bunch of closed solid doors, you know, where everybody's, you know, kind of hidden alone behind in their own private office. You're going to see people out in the open. You're going to see a lot of light. You're going to see a lot of appropriate levels of transparency. But we've also integrated ways that you can keep things private as well, you know, that needs to stay private or confidential. So, but it's it's very intentional. Yeah, another great example is uh, leadership accessibility. When you walk into our headquarters, if you've been there, our leadership team is really within the main pathway between our innovation center and the rest of our space. Every everyday employees will see our CEO walking to the cafe to get his 
um, afternoon refreshment um, every day. And that kind of transparency um, breeds the the kind of culture that that they're hoping to cultivate, like Chris talked about. Yeah, I read the story of it. That was intentional, wasn't it? That the the company moved the leadership suite from where it was to to right near the the learning center and the innovation center. It was a fascinating story. Before we go too deeply into it, I'd like to probe a little bit about both of your backgrounds. So, so Rebecca, you mentioned you joined Steelcase four years ago. What were you doing before that? Before that, I spent 17 years in journalism. So I was working in broadcast and digital news in Kansas City and here in Grand Rapids, as well as with a national broadcast company. Um, so, so I like to I like to joke with my colleagues that um, you know office furniture can be crazy. There's certainly a lot of um, you know intense deadlines in the work that we do, but it's nothing like being in the middle of a newsroom in the midst of breaking news or severe weather or the kinds of things that you just have no control over. And what is your role now within within Steelcase? Well, <laughs> so. I'm really lucky. I have a, I have a really cool job. Uh, my job is to interview people in all of the, the various parts of the world that work for Steelcase, but also some of the top thought leaders in terms of work and workers in the world and, um, and, and write stories, create other types of content um, that can help people understand the shifts and trends within work and how the workplace can do a better job to support what people need. So I get to write about, you know, the, I, I like to say that the writing I do now, the, the kinds of content I create now is so much more applicable to my everyday life than the rare and unusual news events that we would cover all the time. They're both, you know, incredibly important and really good jobs, but I, I got very lucky to find this role. So I get to kind of find all the cool stories and the interesting interviews within and without Steelcase. And I get to turn the tables today and interview you. That's excellent. <laughs> so how about you, Chris? What what was your background and, and what's your role within Steelcase? Yeah, well, I actually started out in journalism as well, but that was a long time ago. And I've been with Steelcase now for 21 years. Um, and so I've had a chance to have a kind of a front row seat to what's happening uh, around the world with um, major organizations around the world, because, you know, we're, we consider ourselves very lucky uh, to be able to serve a lot of the Fortune 500 companies and, you know, see how they work and, you know, see how work is changing. And so, um, since I've been at Steelcase, though, I've also, like Rebecca, I feel like I've got the greatest job that anybody could ask for because uh, I get to be the editor of a publication called 360 Magazine that we produce with the intention of sharing all the vast amount of research that Steelcase does and everything that we're learning about work. And so it it's a great experience to be able to not only um, dig in deep to all of the the research that we're doing and all the things that we're learning, and then to be able to find ways to share that with organizations, with employees, um, just to help it it become real and, and useful to people so they can make better decisions um, based on what we're learning. 
So I've long been a fan of uh, 360 magazine. I've uh, got the the last two copies just behind me. Every time I go into a, a steel case dealer that also works in the AV industry, I, I pick up uh, 360 magazines and they're all available online. I'd highly recommend listeners to, to search them out because they're really thoughtful, worthwhile publications. They're not just mar- advertising tools for Steelcase. They're really, really um, excellent articles about the bigger picture of, of the workspace. And that kind of brings me on to, to my first real question, which is, as I say, Steelcase is really involved in the, the holistic workspace. And what I want to start asking you guys about is, so we're now in the middle of a pandemic. I want to go f- to before the pandemic times, and I want to to ask you about how Steelcase saw the workplace changing maybe in the last 10, 15 years. We saw a lot of... Um, shifting happening in the workplace before the pandemic came along. Um, Some of the things that we were hearing from employees and that was getting widely covered in a lot of the media was frustration over um, the open plan. And I'm using air quotes, even though you can't see me on a podcast, but uh, the reason I'm doing that is because the term open plan has been used widely and means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But um, it really became popular in the 2000s, uh, particularly after the recession in 2008, because you know what was happening at the time, there were a lot of different forces coming together, but um, the technology industry was you know, emerging uh, and blossoming. And a lot of people were looking to what was happening in the technology industry at the time and saying, hey, I want to be like that. I want to be innovative like uh, Google and Microsoft and Facebook and, you know, the big, big tech. So that was starting to influence what people were thinking about in terms of their workplace. But the other thing that was happening is, of course, in the time of a recession, a lot of organizations were starting to look for ways that they could begin to um, really maximize their use of real estate and really be as efficient as possible. And so those two forces kind of combined together with uh, the desire for attracting and and retaining the best talent to to cause the open plan office to become really the, the paradigm of the way offices were designed. But it was implemented and executed very differently, I would say because some organizations did an amazing job of creating open plan workplaces that were vibrant and um, energizing, and um, they allowed people to really be highly productive and to you know, be able to focus and concentrate and get their work done. But there were a number of things that weren't going quite as well in some other organizations where maybe people were getting packed in a little bit too tight um, maybe things were a little bit too open and people complained that they, you know, were frustrated and that they couldn't, they didn't have privacy. They couldn't, um, they couldn't get their work done as effectively. And so, you know, that was a big reckoning that, uh, we were trying to help clients through before the pandemic was coming. And so we were talking to them about 
how employees really needed to have choice and control over where and how they work, that we needed to be able to create work environments where people were empowered to decide what was the best place for them to do their best work. Um, some people need four walls on a door, but other people need to have, you know, to be able to sit by a window and look at something that's inspiring or, um, you know, but we needed that level of control as employees to be able to do our best work. And we were also seeing a big shift toward people wanting a degree of informality that maybe didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. And, you know, some of that certainly was inspired by what was happening in the tech industry. But people were just saying, look, I don't, I don't want to come into the office that's stiff and formal. I want to be able to have a place where I could sit on a sofa and put my feet up and, you know, be in a much more kind of relaxed environment. So there were some really positive things that were going on before the pandemic. And then there were also some things that, you know, people were frustrated with. Uh, and I would say, you know, we've been learning a lot since then about what people want. Yes, this this concept of of workplaces that are that have a degree of flexibility in in where you work and maybe even where you work during a day. So not just the type of space that you always inhabit, but but the ability to move between spaces. About twenty five years ago uh, in Denmark, I, I visited an office, a, a groundbreaking office from a company called Oticon, who are a hearing aid manufacturer, and this is before a lot of the technology that we now have existed but they moved into a totally paperless office and they had this uh they have this office in the Tuborg brewery former Tuborg brewery in Copenhagen and they at the time they got all of the paper in every day and they took it to the top of this three-story office and they had a shredder and, and they scanned it and shredded it and there was this uh perspex tube that went down a spiral staircase where all through the day you could see that the uh, shredded paper, which went into the basement where they bundled it up and recycled it. But also all of the employees, none of the employees had their own desk, but they could um, congregate in teams according to what they were doing. And there was the technology existed where they could sit at a desk and put in their name and password and their files would be there. And and they had this little... Um, trolley that they wheeled along with their personal effects and they also every employee had a similar uh, setup at home and they could choose to work at home or in the office and they didn't even have enough space for everyone to be in the office so it was but that was really an outlier in those days I remember BBC did a uh, documentary on it and they we we actually I worked with them because they were an audio company um, and it it was this kind of real outlier but as in the intervening years it's become more more common and the technology has has advanced to be able to support that when did you really see that happening at steelcase uh, you know i would say what you described is is pretty progressive and you know we were seeing because we're studying progressive organizations uh, to see you know where the the leading edge thinking is coming from and so we were starting to see things like that start to happen in the beginning of, of the 2000s. But, but again, I'd say it's kind of been in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years that we've seen that really kind of blossom. And, and also, the, 
you know, we've learned a lot from that experience well. So when you describe kind of the trolleys, um, that was kind of an early experimentation in mobility. And because people who were not used to being mobile, uh, you know, just worried, what do I do with my stuff? And so we would say to people, well, put all your stuff on this cart and then you haul your cart around. Well, we learned over time that people stopped using those things because nobody, people did exactly, you know, what, what you're describing. It may not have been as, as uh, colorful as seeing all of the paper coming down the tube, uh, you know, past them, but people gradually shed their own paper um, and uh, started becoming a little bit more mobile um, and having, you know, obviously as technology has advanced, our mobile devices have advanced, you know, people have been able to be untethered um, from their workplace and from a lot of that stuff that we felt a need to keep around. Um, so, you know, so so we've really seen that as, as a major shift. I, I would also say, though, um, and I, I'm also curious, you know, with with Rebecca coming into this industry, you know, a little bit more recently than than me. Um, what I've seen is feeling like uh, the pendulum starting to swing a tiny bit back where people are saying, you know, I, but I still need my, my place, or at least I need a place. I, I want certain artifacts around me, maybe not because I need to carry all my files with me, but maybe I just want things that bring me joy or pleasure that I can have around me uh, when I'm working. And what are you seeing, Rebecca? Well, I think what's really interesting is as you guys talk about uh, technology getting smaller and, and offering more mobility and making it easier to move around and work from anywhere, the other thing that really caused this acceleration was this shift toward more creative work, this need for more innovation within organizations. And so, you know, instead of instead of people kind of doing their rote part of the task or even just doing their part of the team, what we were finding is that um, in order to get your work done, there's so much more interdependencies. And so you're you're really bouncing between team members in order to get work done. But what we learned about the nature of creative work is that it isn't just collaboration. Like you, you can't collaborate eight hours a day and come up with a genius idea. You have to have time for personal reflection, personal deep focus, the ability to kind of synthesize the information on your own and then come back with a unique point of view that your team can then work with you on and back and forth, back and forth, right? It's this, it's this back and forth. And I think it's the back and forth that was really struggling pandemic it was there there was a lot more emphasis on the collaboration and not as much emphasis on the focus or the ability for the individual to to have time to reflect and rejuvenate and really get their head in the space they needed to be in in order to contribute in a meaningful way and like Chris said some organizations were doing it well I I would say at Steelcase I have the ability to go into a number of different types of spaces get away or shut a door or um, take some time time away but I there were others where it was you know a lot more of a dense situation and less opportunity to have sort of the choice over different types of spaces depending on the work you needed to do so when you talk about flexibility or being able to move around that's that's one type of flexibility and and, and that flexibility really comes in handy when you have 
you're shifting between the types of work you're doing throughout the day, which is just becoming um, like the default, really, right? It's, it's, it's almost less common that you're able to do the same bit of work throughout the day. Um, but of course, that depends on role and industry and, and all of that. So, so there's a lot that's dependent on organizations and, and different individuals. But um, it's interesting to watch how that shift toward creativity and innovation, along with the changing technology and, and our ability to move and, and improve networks, right? So like not just the devices, it's also about the networks and the cloud and the ability to take our content with us. Um, has changed the way that the workplace has adapted to people. Sure, sure, that all makes makes a lot of sense. And and I really have loved seeing what Steelcase has done to uh, create products that that create those spaces. So even at TED, which is a conference, there's different types of seating, and you can go to the area you feel most comfortable in so even in a like a conference environment more a theater environment uh, steelcase managed to to create areas for different types of people i love your brody product the the kind of almost like a business class aircraft seat with a pod around it where even in an open office you can go and and be a little cocooned and and focus for a while um you know we actually did a really interesting study um I think it was a year ago with the University of Wisconsin with the the Brody um, work lounge uh, because we wanted to understand going back to the issues we talked about with the open plan and with privacy, we wanted to understand um, what elements of privacy were impacting people. And so we tested the Brody and also tested people working at an open bench and had the same level of audio uh, disruption going in the background. And we found that people were able to concentrate and focus more effectively in Brody, which is kind of surrounding you visually and helping you manage your visual privacy. But the same audio was going on in the background, which was super interesting that, you know, people sitting in an open environment with the same level of noise were more distracted than people who were sitting um, with having something around them to mitigate the visual distractions. And so, you know, that's really interesting because a lot of times when people talk about their frustrations and they talk about privacy, noise is one of the first things that they mention, which, you know, is interesting for people who are in the business of sound. Um, but yet it was very curious to me and surprised me when we started seeing the results that being able to control visual distractions somehow helped make that noise less bothersome. So that, that was an interesting learning about that one. Yeah, that's, that's, we've seen the converse of that as well, where there's studies where you, you have the, uh, different video screens showing different things, films and things, and you put people in front of them and you ask them where which one the picture is better on, and they will all say, you know, picture uh, screen A, and the screens are identical. It's the audio that changes, and so the point there is the interdependency of our senses. So you can adjust one thing, and it adjusts everything. And you even think that, for example, I imagine those people in the in Brody would actually think that there's less distracting audio, even though the audio isn't any quieter, 
just because the video, the, the, the um, sense of sight is less distracted. They all go together. And I think a lot of the, and, and this is maybe something we'll get into in, uh, later on, but this, this idea of experiences moving into experience economy and multi-sensory uh, input into those experiences, um, they all play together. So let's move towards, you know, we're talking in the middle of a pandemic here. And so particularly with your work with so many large companies, how did you see yourselves and those companies go into the pandemic and how were you able to help them navigate that change? So, yeah, I'll start, I'll start with that one. Um, obviously, when, when the pandemic began in the early days, there was massive changes very quickly. Um, the way that we all lived and worked and learned, all of that changed um, immediately for, for a lot of people. And there was a lot of speculation, like right away about, you know, what's the future of work? What's the future of the office? What's the future of education? What's, you know, what's, what's, what's. Um, and for us, it was really important. And a lot of our customers too, that we stayed very focused on what was the science and the data telling us and, and how could we best advise our customers and ourselves uh, based on what we know from science and from data and what we've been able to learn since then. And so at first they're, they're, and, and continuing, there's big focus on safety, obviously, and, and following existing safety guidelines in terms of distancing and density and um, something that we've, we've labeled geometry, but um, basically like how many face-to-face -face interactions you have, are you able to shift sort of the settings and the furniture in order to, to mitigate face-to-face -face interactions. But looking at the, work, at the work environment and saying, if we're gonna bring people back to the workplace, how can we do so in the safest way possible? and do so in a way that mitigates the spread of disease, which the workplace has never had to really consider um, how to mitigate the spread of an airborne illness before. <laughs> um, in terms of safety, the workplace has focused on, you know, tripping hazards or um, food safety or driving records, but, but never really mitigating the spread of disease. And so this is a whole new, um, new area that, that, is um, really important to make people feel comfortable coming back. And for us, we can, we can talk about ourselves a little bit here because we really started to come back to the office um, a few months ago and middle of the summer. And as we did that, we had lots of new safety protocols and processes and um, spaces in place in order to keep people safe. Um, things like masks and temperature checks and hand sanitizing and furniture changes and, um, you know, pathways and which ways you should, circulation patterns. Um, but what we've learned over time is that that's sort of the initial stage of bringing people back in terms of safety. There now needs to be this, um, this, this second phase, which is really about how do we move forward? And how do we create these, these safe and compelling places where people want to come and work and are able to get their best work done? 
So we've done a ton of research since the pandemic began, starting in March. Um, we've done, I think it's 10 different types of studies across 10 countries with 32,000 people. We've analyzed 8,000 different floor plans. Um, we have the benefit of being able to reach across the globe and really look at um, what people what people want and what organizations are thinking as they're working to bring people back to the workplace. So, um, so now we're looking ahead and saying, what do spaces need to look like and what's the future going to be in order to start moving in that direction? And how can you remain flexible as we're continuing, you know, we're still in the midst of this changing environment and no matter what happens, the potential for change continues to exist, right? Like whether it's this situation or another or a hurricane or a wildfire, you know, you, the level of disruption that organizations have to deal with now is is pretty dramatic and frequent. And so if the ability to be flexible and, and continue to change moving forward is going to be really, really crucial. Yeah, I would, I would just build on that, you know, because at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there was so much that we didn't know. And we thought, you know, a lot of us were optimistic thinking, well, maybe, you know, this will, you know, be done after a few months. And so maybe we don't have to expect significant change. Maybe we'll just all kind of go back to normal pretty quickly. And, you know, what we found, obviously, it extended beyond that. Um, and so, you know, people started having a longer term experience with working at home. And in the early days where people might have thought it was a bit of a holiday, you know, like, yay, we get to be at home with our pajamas on and, you know, we'll work that way. Let's do this forever. That's a great idea. Um, but as that wore on over time, you know, what we learned from people is that, you know, there was a bit of a honeymoon initially. And, and that wore off for a significant amount of people. You know, there's still people who love working from home. They always wanted to have this option. And now, as Rebecca was saying, you know, organizations are thinking about how to best support their people and, and are those who maybe hadn't explored that before, you know, just have to acknowledge that that's going to be um, something that will continue to some degree, um, indefinitely, you know, that, that we've proved that it can be done. Is it optimal for, for everyone? Not so much. We've learned that. We've learned that um, most people do want to actually come back and work in an office. And most people, you know, if they work from home, they're thinking about like one day a week or, or even less than that. Um, but but there certainly are people who are saying, you know, they would like to embrace that kind of work style over a longer period of time. So I think, you know, what, as we look ahead to, to the future, we would say, what are the things that we learn from people's experiences working at home that will influence what they want when they come back to the office? And will that experience when they come back to the office be one that that is compelling you know, that is something where, you know, because safety can sometimes maybe not look like such a inspiring environment. Nobody wants to come back and be surrounded by plexiglass, you know, or, you know, 
feeling like you're in this very sterile operating theater. You know, people want to be able to come back to a workplace that they do feel safe in where we understand how the disease is transmitted a lot more now than we did in March and that we can design for a space that is safe, but is also something where people want to be there. I really want to explore this coming back. But before I do that, I have one question for both of you while we're in the middle of it. So I've been hearing from a lot of people, and I think I feel it even myself in my organization, that people have been really impressed at how productive people can be working from home. So um, a lot of people, a lot of companies were really skeptical about homework and that people would just, just, you know, not really work very hard, but, but they found that people have been very productive. However, what I've begun to hear a lot is people have been very productive in doing tasks that they were already doing that were set before they, they went into lockdown. So the, the kind of rote work that would, and, and what's really suffering is the creative bit, the, the bit like when I finish this task, what is my next task going to look like? You know, if I'm developing a product, where's the ideation? How have you helped people, even within this distributed work environment now, overcome that kind of creative spark as well as just getting the stuff done? Yeah, so it's a definite challenge, Graham. I mean, that that's you hit the nail on the head right there. Uh, the idea of being able to get rote tasks done at home is is definitely something that people have been able to do. And especially at the beginning of the pandemic, where there was something that um, some people have labeled like panic productivity, this idea mm-hmm. that if we pull ourselves into our work, the world will keep spinning, everything will keep going, and it's going to be okay. And uh, I certainly um, found myself in the midst of something that felt like that. Um, but but that's not sustainable over the long term, right? And um, and being to being able to be creative over um, over virtual channels is is a challenge, and it has to be super intentional. So. There are definitely things that we've done. Uh, We've tried to have more consistent meetings within our team to keep everyone on the same page. We've tried to do a lot more digital, um, uh, you know, archiving of our content so that we can do more sharing. I personally started to do what I called hallway check-ins virtually, um, where I would reach out to a few people. The thing I've struggled, one of, one of the things, and we've heard from others as well as part of our research that people struggle with, is the shrinking of networks. I'm mm-hmm. quite connected to my team, the people I work with every day. But part of my job is to connect my ideas with the ideas going on in the greater organization and to even find ideas that are happening in the rest of the organization and not being able to bump into those people in the hallway or in the cafe has been just hugely challenging. Um, And so I did try to, you know, for a while set up these little like 15 minute check-ins, but it Mm -hmm. requires intentionality. It requires, um, you know, a lot, it, it it just requires initiative. um, And it requires a little bit more um, ability to be forthright. And so one of the things that we've seen through the research is that young people are especially struggling working from home, which 
sort of at, at the surface felt counterintuitive because you would think young people, they've got technology down pat. They grew up on it. They, you know, they have every conversation over text, um, but, but they're having a hard time um, building their networks from home. Um, they're not able to create that social capital and the investment in relationships. And even the people I was setting up these hallway chats with were people I already had previous relationships with. They already knew me and, and I knew them. They just weren't in my um, immediate sphere of a network. Um, so so we've, we've definitely employed some tactics within our organization to try to keep the creative ball rolling. But certainly when we had the opportunity to go back to the office, um, we did we did it. We did so because it's just easier to do it in person. We had a few meetings where we were able to sit outside in one of our workspaces outside um, over the course of the summer and having our team in one place and with some mobile whiteboards that we had outside to take notes and be able to see what we were talking about all at once, all together was, um, I mean, it, it was, it just felt so, so good and so much better. Um, so I would say that, you know, we've certainly done done things to try to overcome those hurdles, but it just requires so much more intentionality and a lot more a lot more work and um, existing relationships. So you have to invest in the, the building of those relationships. I don't know, Chris, would you add anything to that? Well, it's funny, Rebecca, because when you described that, I remember the day so well when we were able to come back into the office and that we had our our collaboration sessions sitting outside. And, you know, our jobs are creative jobs. And I, I thought I was doing okay working from home. We have a lot of social capital. Um, and so I, I thought we were managing okay. But then when I was standing there with a whiteboard and a marker in my hand, the ideas were just flowing. And it, that was like a, a, one of those, those moments of clarity where I went, oh my gosh, this, I, I'm, I'm not just breathing our own exhaust about why the office is great. Like I, I personally experienced the difference between sitting by myself in my son's old bedroom, working on a laptop to being able to be physically present with other people, interacting with them, and and actually um, physically up and moving around the whiteboard and around you know the space, and and it confirms some earlier research that we had done that was pre-pandemic um, that was about the physicality of collaboration, where we actually. Um, we actually saw that when people are able to get up and move, um, they're, they're so much more, um, they're, they generate more ideas. Um, they are more engaged in the conversation. And so when you think about what that means, like while we're living in this kind of hybrid work experience, you know, large scale devices uh, are going to become critically important in in the office it's tough for most of us to be able to afford those kinds of things in our home offices but to be able to have that kind of large-scale collaboration technology available is i think going to help kind of braid those um, digital and physical experiences when we're at work 
in a way that it's going to feel a lot uh, more seamless. So, uh, so again, using that kind of technology when we were in the office, we were able to collaborate with um, teammates who are remote. And we're always going to have teammates who are remote, regardless of the pandemic. You know, we're a global organization. We work with people in Munich and Hong Kong and Amsterdam. And being able to use that kind of technology to allow us to create remotely is just a critical tool um, for people to be able to, to generate new ideas and solve complex problems that you really can't do as easily on your own. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, a number of things occurred to me there. One of the things was, as I've been doing these and talking to people, something that I became aware of that I didn't really think about was um, I actually work from home anyway, so it wasn't a big change for me. But I also have a decent sized house and um, you know, my, my daughter's at university. It's relatively easy for me. If I'm a early 20-something sharing an apartment with four other people all trying to work from home, that's way more difficult. Or if I've got a young family, that's way more difficult. So a lot of the... the and also... I, I have my social network. I have my family. I have my, you know, I built that. Whereas again, if I'm younger, I'm looking to work for a lot of that and my workmates for a lot of that. So a lot of the pressure people are feeling it comes not so much from the managers, but for, from the, the young uh, workers who desperately want to get back to work. So, you know, to, to begin to wrap this up and I could talk to you for ages, I'd love to, but um how do you see all of this playing into long-term changes in the workplace? Well, Graham, as we've been synthesizing all this research that we've done over the months of the pandemic, and we've really looked at how um, people's experience working from home are shaping what they want, um, we've actually seen some patterns that have emerged in terms of you know where we think things are going to uh, go with the workplace. So as we've been talking about throughout, um, safety is going to be a major uh, influencer. Organizations are going to need to design their workplace for safety and safety, including the mitigation of um, the transmission of disease. And, you know, again, that's a very new job description for the office uh, to, to need to think about that. Um, the other thing that will be a major shift is um, what you were just alluding to about what young people want. And, and that is workplaces that help foster a sense of belonging and community. People were, were looking to the workplace to deliver that sense of community, again, before the pandemic, that a lot of our traditional structures in society where we felt that sense of belonging you know, maybe people weren't feeling a part of as much, you know, like maybe they don't know their neighbors or they weren't part of a uh, an social organization. And so people were coming into the workplace looking for that sense of belonging. That's become even more important. And so the workplace is going to need to be designed again intentionally to foster that sense of community and um you know, for people to feel like they're building that social capital. Um, the other thing that we see happening is, uh, and you mentioned it before, but an increased focus on flexibility 
at all levels, it, it, the built environment, the entire building structure um, needs to be inherently more flexible. And when we get into the workplace, uh, you know, we're going to be seeing a shift from things that are a lot more fixed to things that are more fluid. So that's part of giving people control, frankly, when they can change things and move things around. And it's also part of allowing an organization to be resilient and to adapt to whatever situation they face. Again, whether it's pandemic or simply business growth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then in addition to that, we see that the workplace is going to need to be a lot more inspiring going forward. Again, when people are, are, a lot of us have been fortunate enough, you know, I'm sitting at home right now and I'm able to look out at the beautiful fall colors and, you know, a, a sunny day. And, you know, that's really inspiring. And uh, my furniture isn't that comfortable and my, my sofa, but my, uh, where I'm sitting right now, fortunately, I have a, a great chair in my office, but you know, the, the things that people are just going to expect and, and deserve is to be able to come into a workplace where it feels inspiring. It shouldn't feel cold or um, uh, off-putting at all when people come back into the office. So those are some major shifts that we see will start to take place. They are starting and we think mm -hmm. they'll gain momentum. Mm. Yeah, and adding back into the, the conversation we had earlier about um, the open office and, and people's desire to, to focus and get things done, we really think that, you know, when people come into the office, especially moving forward, but pre-pandemic as well, they want to feel a sense of progress. Like I, I want to feel like I'm, I'm getting stuff done and I'm, I'm making a contribution. Right. And it adds to that sense of community and belonging. If I can feel that way and to mm -hmm. feel that way, I, I don't just want an office for collaboration only. Like I want to collaborate in the office, but people are also telling us they really want to be able to focus and get work done. So seeing that that um, restoration of a balance between um, the individual and the team and their ability to collaborate and to focus. Thank you. So so I think you know some of the things that are interesting are the balance between like the the table stakes. You mentioned safety and security, and those are kind of we have those at home because we have a bubble. So kind of those are table stakes almost. But then there's the idea of um, the delight that encourages people to come back to work because some people will be sitting there going, well, I'm saving an hour a day in a commute and, and you know, I, I much prefer working at home. Why should I go back into an office? So there's that sense of enticement and, and creating something that makes people want to go back into the office. Um, as well as what you were talking about, Chris, which was flexibility, because I imagine once people go back into the office, it may be at partial occupancy. And so they may you may have to reorganize a place. But and then that'll change as people can go back in. And and as you mentioned, with resilience and with the likelihood that, that you know, this is maybe just the first pandemic or there, there will be other challenges that companies go through that require them to to make these changes again on the fly. Um, any any other comments about, about that or last comments that you'd like to make uh, before we shut down? Well, I, 
I think we said this earlier, but just to, to circle back on that, you know, this balance between safe and compelling, I think is going to be a really uh, critical thing that we all need to be thinking about. Um, safety, obviously, from a physical point of view, but also psychological safety, you know, just feeling like uh, you're not threatened, you're, you're, feel, you're not feeling anxious as you go throughout your day as, as a person. Um, you know, so being, being very aware of humanities, uh, you know, and our needs, uh, to be physically and emotionally safe. Um, but also as human beings, you know, we desire to be in places that feel good, um, and that help us feel good. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do both. I think it's a cop-out, um, for anybody who would say, well, you know, it's an either or proposition. Um, we, we think, you know, em employees um, have every right to expect that an organization should be able to create a balance between spaces that are both safe and compelling going forward. Yeah, and I would I would just say that it's really not as, as we look at at the future and about people coming back to the workplace. We're choosing to look at it as it's not about people necessarily just coming back to the workplace and back to the workplace that they left because a lot's changed and, and mm -hmm. changes can actually be beneficial moving forward for both people and the organization. So it's really about helping people come back and return to something that's better than what they left. And, and it has the opportunity to create great positive change moving forward. That's a fantastic final thought because that's something I've thought a lot about. We've, we've had this ability as a human race to pause for a little while and we can just go back to doing what we're we were doing before or we can take this opportunity to to make changes that in all aspects from from global kind of climate change right down to the environments we go back to work in to make things consciously better and i i'm really glad you brought that up and that's a great end to what I've a conversation I've really enjoyed. I was really looking forward to this and it didn't disappoint. And I'd really encourage everyone, Steelcase are doing amazing things. If you need help getting back into the workplace, if you need help getting inspiring workplaces, safe workplaces, they're a great resource. So how do people get in touch with you? First of all, Chris, how do how do people get in touch with you? Well, if they want to get in touch with me, uh, I would welcome uh, just shoot me an email and my email is a congdon at steelcase.com and, you know, and, and invite people to uh, join us at steelcase.com. We have a pretty robust uh, conversation going out there and we have pretty robust uh, content to be able to offer people so they can kind of go at their own pace. So we'd love to hear from people. Is it easy to get to the 360 content through the main page or is there a, a link that's, that's specific to that? It is so easy because right across the top nav navigation, there's a tab that says 360 research. So it's an easy way for people to Perfect. find what they're looking for. Yeah. Perfect. And how about you, Rebecca? How do, we, how do people get in touch with you? Well, my last name's too long for an entire email with my last name on it, but uh, people are welcome to email me. I'm at rcharbau at steelcase.com. 
Um, and I, I agree with Chris, I encourage people to just go to steelcase.com, click on research, and they'll have access to all of our magazines, all of our podcasts, all of our most recent articles, and they'll get the option to sign up for a newsletter. And our newsletters come out every two weeks with the most recent content that we're publishing. So it's really the best way to keep up to speed with what we're learning. Thanks. And thanks so much, Chris and Rebecca, for your time. And also for everyone listening, thank you for giving us your time. Please let us know what you thought. So in your podcast um, consumption mechanism of choice, Spotify, Apple, Google, please leave us a rating, make comments. Please come back and listen to more of these if you've enjoyed this one. And thank you again and goodbye for this time. <laughs>